SLP in Hillsboro, North Carolina. This is Dirty White Belt Radio. Innovative, often duplicated When enough people get on the trend I elevate it, make it way harder For them to follow what I take It hard to swallow like a lozenger Lodged in your trachea Goodness gracious, bruh, I can never make this up So just take your stuff Rake it up and take the bus Never fake the funk, you painted skunks You played enough, I'm lifting bars to outer space So the weight is up Fight, Welcome to another episode of Dirty White Belt Radio, everyone. It is always exciting when we get a legend of jiu-jitsu on the show to tell us old school stories about training with the masters and to give us advice about how they got to where they are today. That's one reason we started this show, to try to get to talk to these legends. And today, we're thrilled to say we get to talk to not just one, but two of them. We'll introduce each of those in due time, but first, I need to tell you how to get a hold of the show. You can always email the show. That address is cagesidewhup at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at DWB Radio and on Instagram at Dirty White belt we're very active on instagram so you can get out of either tagging us or using the hashtag dirty white belt and with that i got to get to the news there are three things that i'm really excited to tell you about first of all we're having a mundial watch plan and contest on the blog this week at dirtywhitebelt.com, I posted something about how to watch the Mundials using a flow grappling account. One of the ways that we try to keep track of our local jiu-jitsu athletes is make a list beforehand of where they're going to be competing, on what mat, and about what time. We're going to keep you updated on that on the blog at, on dirtywhitebelt.com blog. So if you want to follow along with that and see all the the competitors from North Carolina and beyond will be posting a list of what mat they're at, about what time they're going to compete, and try to keep track of that. All of that information is on our blog if you want to check it out. The Mundials start Wednesday, and so every day, Wednesday through Sunday, we're going to be posting an open thread at our Facebook page, which is uh, facebook.com slash cagesideradio. So every day, there's going to be an open thread there where we're going to be posting updates, photographs, and video where we can that help you keep track of how all the locals are doing. You can participate in that. That's why it's an open thread. So if you know of somebody that isn't on the list or somebody from your school that's competing or somebody that you know, feel free to join in in that thread and keep us posted about who from North Carolina and beyond is doing uh, is doing well at the Mundials. There's also something that this is the first time we're doing. And so if you want to win some free stuff, some Dirty White Belt Radio gear, some shirts, some hats, some gi patches, we got a bunch of stuff that you can participate in in a fun and free contest. And that's a Mundial predictions contest. Basically, what we're asking you to do is we're asking you to pick the winner, just the winner, the gold medalist, from each of the weight classes for men and women. There are 10 possible points for the men's division, 9 possible points for the women's division because there's one more weight class for the men. And we're asking you to pick the absolute champion in each. If you do that, the person that gets the most points at the end of the Mundials is going to win a bunch of free stuff. The top three finishers are going to get prizes. And most of all, just like knowledge is your reward, the fun of enjoying adding a little bit of interest to the Mundials is going to be fun. So if you want to participate, go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash cagesideradio. We have a pinned post at the top of that Facebook page, and just post your picks in that thread. And then follow along with us when the worlds start on Wednesday. If you don't have a Flow Grappling account, don't worry, we do. And so in the open thread, we're going to keep you posted on all of the results. It's the most wonderful time of the year, the time when your friends and neighbors get to compete at the Mundials, and I couldn't be more excited to follow along and keep you all updated with that. 
I want to talk to you guys about Cageside Fight Company for a second. I've been buying from Cageside for more than six years, and about 99% of the gear that I use is from Cageside. That's not because other companies don't make good stuff. They do. It's just that Cageside offers the highest quality products at the best value and, no joke, the best customer service I've ever experienced in my life. So whether you're looking for shin pads, whether you're looking for Thai gear, whether you're looking for Brazilian jiu-jitsu geese or Valetudo shorts, whether you're looking for the coolest t-shirts around, check out Cageside.com or come into their fight shop at one two four Lotter Road, right in Durham, North Carolina. You won't be sorry. Another thing I want to mention about Cage Side is they do more to support local fighters and local Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu competitors than just about anybody else. And so we've got to support the people that support us. Check out Cage Side Fight Company, one two four Lotter Road in Durham, North Carolina, or online at CageSide.com. So that's our Mundial's watch plan and contest. Stay tuned to the blog, dirtywhitebelt.com/blog, or the Facebook page, facebook.com/cagesideradio, and we'll keep you updated on all that stuff. Another upcoming thing for the news. Um, U.S. Grappling Richmond is June 27th. U.S. Grappling is coming off a very successful tournament in Greensboro, and I'm happy to report that work is not sending me out of town this time, so I'm definitely going to be refing and competing at U.S. Grappling Richmond on June 27th. Uh, you know, every U.S. Grappling tournament is a terrific tournament, but I have a particular fondness for the Richmond tournament, and this is why. In North Carolina, we get to train and compete against each other all the time, right? Like, e- even Charlotte you know, and the Triangle, who don't get to train and compete together as much, get to train and compete with each other maybe more than our colleagues in Virginia. And Richmond serves as a wonderful waypoint where folks from D.C. come down, where folks from Charlotte, folks from the Triangle, folks from South Carolina, and, of course, the Richmond scene, which is rich in jiu-jitsu as well, all get together and compete on the mats. And so a lot of these folks you know and are old friends, some of them you've never competed against. And so you get the opportunity to compete against people that you've never really stepped on the mat against in a competitive setting. And so that's exciting. U.S. Grappling uh, Richmond is June 27th. You can register online at usgrappling.com. You get a benefit from registering early, and plus it helps our friends and neighbors at U.S. Grappling uh, keep their stress levels low. So please register early. Save yourself some money. Save us all some stress. Our favorite tournament organization, U.S. Grappling, comes back to uh, Richmond, Virginia, on June 27th. Hey, Jeff Shaw. Yes, Betsy. When you were starting out competing in tournaments, how often did you compete? I competed regularly. Every tournament that I possibly could, I went and competed at. My first tournament was about two months after I'd started training, and it was the U.S. Grappling NC State Championships in Raleigh. Oh, wow. What was that like? Uh, it was overwhelming. I had a no-gi match. I had prepared so hard. And no-gi, they always run no-gi first. And I had trained so hard. I was in great shape. And about 30 seconds in, I just wanted to die. And I had this <laughs> adrenaline dump that was just embarrassing. I still have this match on video. And uh, it's, it's, it's one of those things that you look back on as you, you're not happy that you did it, but you're happy that you have done it. <laughs> Well, um, I'm looking forward to checking out uh, U.S. Grappling competition, and it's, I think my first match is going to be at U.S. Grappling. Is there anything I need to know besides to watch out for the adrenaline dump? Definitely watch out for the adrenaline dump. Just show up ready to compete and have a good experience. You'll uh, keep an open mind, and remember that all of these other people are grapplers, too, that do this because they love it and because they have fun. And one thing that keeps me sane and keeps my mentality positive is before I step on the mat, no matter how tough the other person is, no matter if I don't know anything about them or don't know anything about them, I always remind myself, hey, this is what you do for fun. You choose to be here. There's no place that you would rather be. Well, we're going to be at a U.S. grappling tournament in the next couple of weeks, so we'll see you there. If you want to find their full schedule, uh, you can go to usgrappling.com, and thanks for supporting our friends and sponsors over there.
So for the last part of the news, we actually have a brief interview for you. This is a departure for us to have interviews during the news segment, but I think you'll understand why this is important in a second. So last week, for the second time, we sponsored a seminar. Dirty White Belt Radio and Toro BJJ presented Murillo Bustamante at the Cageside Fight Company and Toro BJJ World Headquarters. Now, our first seminar was with one of the best in the game today, Dominico Oblanite. But this past week, we brought in one of the best of all time. Marilla Bustamante is legitimately one of the most outstanding martial artists ever. He was a former UFC middleweight champion, fought in pride, fought valet Tudo, was a Mundial Jiu-Jitsu Gi world champion, fought at ADCC Nogi. So he's done it all, and he's timeless. He's one of those guys that competed at the highest level late into his 30s, won the UFC championship when he was, I think, 37, 38 years old. And so legitimately one of the the, the men with the best technique, uh, the best toughness, and the best attitude about the martial arts ever. And so we're really excited about the success of each of those seminars. We had about 35 people at each of them. So there is a good chance we'll be doing more Dirty White Belt sponsored seminars. So if there's someone that you would like to see, please email the show or hit me up on Facebook or Twitter and let us know who you'd like to see us bring in. But you don't just bring a legend into your community and not talk to them. And so now that you know Marillo's credentials, and I hope you knew that before I just said them, um, I would like you to listen to a little bit of what we got to talk to Marillo about. After the seminar, Hoist Gracie Black Belt Seth Champ, who is my instructor, as many of you know, got the chance to ask him a few questions. And I found his answers pretty fascinating in this brief interview. So in the next segment, you're going to hear Seth asking Marillo Bustamante why it's so important for MMA fighters to train in the gi, in his opinion, about how Marilla was able to fight at the highest level and succeed well into his late 30s. So there's a lot of lessons there for longevity for all of us. And about some of his favorite memories in the martial arts. So here are his answers to those questions. A lot of MMA fighters feel like they don't need to train in the gi. What would you say to them? I can say this mandatory training with gi, you know, to improve your game, make your game tighter, better, and... The guys that don't train a gi, you know, uh, when they go to fight, for sure they're going to miss some, you know, some some kind of adjustment in their game, and especially when they go to the submission positions, you know. The gi helps a lot, and I think it is uh, something that makes a big difference for the fighters. You were able to train successfully at a very high level into your late 30s. What do you think the secret to being able to train so long into your uh, late into your career was? I think uh, the most important I, I concern about was how to try to make jiu-jitsu concern about the techniques, make the techniques better, try to improve my, my, my skills. Uh, I was concerned about how to make jiu-jitsu not using too much strength, you know, concern more about the techniques and make it like uh, jiu-jitsu, concern very much about uh, using my body and my moves without spending too much strength. So I think it's the, the and take care of my body, of course, my, my you know, the, the I, I used to eat, you know, eat well and uh, do a lot of yoga and, and train, you know, uh, as much as I, I could, but not hard every day, you know, respecting my body. Last question. What is your best memory from all of your years in martial arts? I have a lot of, a lot of good memories, you know. Uh, when I was pretty young, starting to fight jiu-jitsu at the blue belt, I have, a, you know, my first tournament that I compete, and, you know, and many tournaments before 
uh, arrived the, the the black belt and as a black belt the big tournaments when they create a CBJJ CBJJ and then IBJJF you know uh, memories of when I got a world title when I lost the awards the first time because I didn't train well for the competition and memories when I got a belt in UFC when I fought in Japan when I fought Tom Erickson you know so so much memories that uh, it's pretty hard to pick one of them perfect thank you so much Merlo my thanks to Seth Champ for doing that interview after the Marilla Bustamante seminar and to the great Marilla Bustamante for ask, answering our questions. I also want to thank Marilla for teaching a fantastic seminar and to mention that if you get armbarred this week, I'd blame him. Now it's time for our featured interview. I've been very excited to bring you this interview ever since we recorded it. When we started doing the show, we had certain goals. We wanted to tell stories that weren't being told and ideally hear stories from the people who lived them and are currently living them. We also wanted to explore jiu-jitsu history. We wanted to help people with their journey through jiu-jitsu by getting insight on how to improve from the best instructors that we could find. And we also wanted to foster a sense of community here in the Carolinas and beyond, all up and down the East Coast and extending through the jiu-jitsu community, indeed through the world. I mention this because the interview you're about to hear with Pedro Sauer hits on all these goals and more. Master Sauer has a lifelong commitment to jiu-jitsu that started in Brazil with Elio Gracie, that came with him to California first, then to Utah, and now to Herndon, Virginia. He sat down with us after a training session at Pedro Sauer headquarters, which is in Herndon, and he gave us his perspective on how to train jiu-jitsu for life. He told us a bunch of interesting things, including the true meaning of self-defense to him, about why receiving a black belt means that you have to do something beyond the mat, including being active in the community, about the real story of how he came to Utah and what happened with Lance Bachelor, Mr. Utah, the famous fight that's on the internet still. He also showed us around his gym, which has some incredible historical artifacts. This includes something I'm excited to tell you about, and you'll hear about in the interview, but I want to tell you my story about it too, which is Elio Gracie's choking log. It's a log that's wrapped with a black belt that Elio Gracie used to practice collar chokes on. You can see this and other artifacts from jiu-jitsu history at the Sauer Association headquarters in Herndon, Virginia. You can also see the pictures on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash cagesideradio, or on our website at dirtywhitebelt.com. Before you hear the interview, I want to take a minute to thank David Porter, who is a black belt under Pedro Sauer and who generously agreed to show me around and set up the interview. We had a tremendous training session with Dave Porter and with Rylan Lazarez, who is a second degree black belt under Pedro Sauer. It was a great experience to be at his academy. I encourage everybody around to visit, as does the man himself. So I've delayed this long enough, and I'm very excited to bring you our interview with the legendary Pedro Sauer. Our featured interview today is brought to you by Toro Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Company, featuring the best gis, rash guards, shirts, fight shorts, and all other products for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Toro BJJ is the best company to support for your grappling needs. Additionally, Toro BJJ does a lot to support our local community as well, and it's important to support those who support us. You can check them out online at torobjj.com or in person at 124 Ladder Road in the location of Cage Side Fight Company and Triangle Jiu-Jitsu. Thanks to Toro BJJ for supporting this featured interview. So we've just finished an amazing night of training at the legendary Pedro Sauer's headquarters, and uh, thank you so much for having me in your academy. It was a real pleasure, and I'm very lucky to be uh, talking today with uh, legendary Pedro Sauer, so thank you. It's my pleasure, man. You're always welcome. Anybody who's listening, you're always welcome to come to the academy. Did you always know that you wanted to teach jiu-jitsu and have an academy? Not really. When I started doing jiu-jitsu, I had no idea. I just wanted to be a student, and I was a Elio Gracie student for 15 years um, before I moved to America. 
Yeah, actually, when I moved to America, I moved with Elio. We moved together here. And um, no, I never thought about teaching Jiu-Jitsu. I was a stockbroker for many years. At what point in your training did you realize this is something I want to do and dedicate my life to? Well, I started doing Jiu-Jitsu, uh, teaching Jiu-Jitsu in Brazil in 1989 when Hickson moved to America. And I had an option, an opportunity to go teach at Corpo Quattro. And um, so I started doing that. I did that for one year before my trip to, Brazil, uh, to America. And um, that, that one year that I did Jiu-Jitsu over there in Brazil, I liked it. It was very fun, and I, I saw a lot of a big difference in a lot of people's mind there. Maybe because of my personality, uh, a little bit more easygoing on, on the mat, instead too harsh and break and go for and go, 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 go. I was more on the kind of detail-oriented. And I noticed that it was a little bit different uh, for the people that I was teaching there. It makes made a big, big, big difference. So when I moved to America, uh, I moved here, but I didn't speak any English. So it was a very trick in the beginning to try to pass the message uh, without the language. So we did a lot of fighting. That's what we did most of the time. So you came to California initially, and I'm wondering how you ended up in Utah for many years before you came out here. Yeah, I was in California for six months, and I used to, live, I used to sleep at Hickson's Garage with Elio and Limon. And um, one of the students, his name was Steve Bishop, uh, he was referred to go to Hickson Academy, to Hickson's Garage, by another guy. His name was Joe Marders. And uh, Joe was a, a martial arts practitioner, a very talented guy from Utah. And Steve just was uh, doing some business in, uh, in L.A., came to class. And when he was there, uh, Steve he was a, a Mormon, and he learned how to speak Spanish. And I learned Spanish in those six months that I was in California. I used to work with uh, some Spanish lady. And she spoke all day, so I ended up learning some words here and there, so I could communicate with Steve in, in Spanish. And uh, he started to say, hey, you're a black belt, why you don't think to come to Utah? That's what happened. And so a lot of your old school black belts are still in Utah, and I'm wondering if you have memories of those early days, of tough days of training, or of, of, of when you knew that this was starting to take off for you in the American Southwest. Yeah, in the beginning, Utah was very difficult, because I didn't speak any English, and when I moved there, I moved to Utah to teach Jiu-Jitsu at the Gold's Gym. And there was a lot of bodybuilders there. And in the early 90s, was a, a, a fever of people doing steroids. A lot of people was using steroids. So I had a humongous people come to my class every day. I was 150 pounds and, you know, a little bit dark skin. And everybody thought about, wow, who's this dark skin guy? Who's this guy, you know, little guy who's going to... So all the big guys that came to my class... And um, I ended up fighting every single one. And even the owner of the, the, the gym, Gold's Gym, came there. And I had to put a hold of him. I actually put him to sleep. <laughs> so you were teaching at the Gold's Gym, and the owner decided he wanted to fight you. Well, he came to train. You know? yeah. And, uh, you know, it was no gi. And I got him in a choke, uh, a mataleon. He didn't tap. And, and he went to sleep, and he never came back to class. I suppose you can react one of two ways to getting put to sleep by a 150-pound guy. Either don't come back to class or really dedicate yourself to learning jiu-jitsu. Yeah, back in the early days, the problem that was a lot of people was getting the ego hurt. So for you to be choked or be submitted by somebody 150 pounds, it hurt your ego very badly in the early days. Because you didn't know very well, was not very well known. Jiu-jitsu was not, you know, nobody knew jiu-jitsu. And now this little guy just go ahead and toy with you, put in a pretzel, and tap you left and right. Because it was not tap you just once. We used to tap people a dozen of times. One after the other, after the other, after the other. It was like a dozen of times. 
So that used to be used to hurt people, used to demoralize people, and used to hurt people in the pride. Of the people whose pride got hurt, how many? Like, do you have a percentage of how many people stayed to train and how many people just left and kind of pretended it never happened? I want to say probably ninety percent of the people they left, ten percent to stay, and the ten percent to stay, a big percentage got hurt. Not uh, they didn't get hurt uh, like mentally. Some some got hurt mentally and they they created this block image. They don't want to do it, but some other people get hurt physically. So it was it was a very difficult for you to build a school in the early days. It was almost impossible. Is that also being around a bunch of bodybuilders with steroids and stuff? I've always been curious about how the Lance Bachelor Mr. Utah fight came to be. What was the origin of that famous fight that's on YouTube still? Yeah, he was a uh, he. He was one of the guys that is in the. It was in the gym. I, I don't. I never met him before. I never seen him. Um, I believe he had a show, uh, a, a radio show, that used to give tips for food and diet, and cut weight. He was a seven times uh, national champion, bodybuilder. He was a pretty fit guy, and apparently he saw me, after Hoist fought UFC one, I went to a radio station called K Bear One Hundred One, and uh, from there. Uh, my parent, Lance Bachelor, was uh, in the radio station, and I think the radio guys, they start teasing Lance. Hey, Lance, I think you can take him. I think that's how it started, I believe. And he kind of, yeah, he's too skinny, too small. And uh, anyway, they called me my house, and I, I answered the phone, and I can talk. My, I was talking to him, and myself was in the radio, was in the life. And uh, he's, we set up a fight for two days later. And folks that are interested can still see that fight today. And I think I think people still go back to that fight as an example of jujitsu in its purest form with a small guy. And it doesn't even look like you're exerting a lot of, of effort against this larger, stronger opponent. Is that an accurate impression of the fight that I have from watching it? Well, I was a, in a completely laid back and peaceful kind of way. On the beginning, right from the beginning, when I was striking him a couple of times, yeah, I had a little... Uh, I want to give him a little less. But after seeing him taking the, the, the blows, and I saw his nose moving to the left and to the right and the blood coming down, I almost kind of toned it down a little bit. And when, he, when we went to the grappling part, my goal was not to get hit. I just want to get hit by somebody 100 pounds heavier than me. And that was my device that Elio Grace gave to me. The only device he gave to me was like, don't get hit. Don't get in a punching you know, festival to get hit. So that's, that's what I did. I tried to survive. I tried to defend it. And um, I knew that the submission was going to happen. It was a matter of time. So I just hold him, protect myself. He was actually a very lucky guy. Because if you think about the, when he charged me, if you watch the video again, right in the beginning, after striking a couple of times, and I did the, the, the leg distance, skip the distance, the pizon, and uh, came one time, he just charged towards me. And when he went to the ground, I flipped him out of, when the, soon you touch the ground, bloop, I flipped right, right, right away. But if you notice, he had just one arm around my body. And with the one arm, he was able to actually take me out of the mount position because he just was so much weight and size and momentum going on that he flipped my body and I went to the bottom. And uh, every time that I flip him, and he had a wrestling background, too, so he doesn't want to be on his back. So he was pretty much on the ground, on the top. So I knew it was a matter of time, the, the submission. I just have to hold my horse and don't get hit. So you mentioned the things that Elio Gracie taught you. I'm wondering, do you remember the first time you met Elio Gracie? Yes, I do. Yes, first time I met him. Uh, I saw him, uh, one time I saw him as a kid. 
I watched him sitting down on the beach in, um, in Rio de Janeiro. The name of the beach was Prainha. And it was a very desert, desert bridge. There was nobody there. And I saw this guy sitting down on a rock with his leg crossed, almost like a, in a pose, like a meditating pose. And I was looking, it's like, who's that? Who's the guy over there? It was kind of different. He was an older guy. He was all white hair. And somebody told him, this is Elio Gracie. And, that's, uh, and I knew, I heard about him before. I saw him before. I never talked to him. And uh, with my friendship with Hickson, uh, knew each other on the street. We used to hang out on the street and do, uh, you know, just hanging out on the street. And Hickson took me to the academy. And that's when I met Elio the first time. When I shook his hand, I knew that I was shaking some uh, very individual, special individual, because he had a handshake that was very powerful. You have a... Uh a choking log with a belt around it in this academy. And it, I've heard that that belonged to Elio Gracie. Can, can you tell us about it? Yes. Uh, when we were kids, uh, Elio school, we used to have a, a, a choke. Uh, it was a piece of wood with a belt, and we just choked this piece of wood. So we'd done that. I'd done this for 15 years of my life as a kid. Every single day, we grab the thing, we choke. Every single day. That was part of exercise, part of the training, part of warming up. The, the piece of log just stayed there. And it was a friend of mine who built the, the log and gave to Elio. And apparently, he got that log back. His name is Bauru, a good friend of mine. Bauru got the log back, and he gave to me. So the log is here right now in the academy. I noticed you have a lot of... One of, one of the, the really cool things about your academy is that you have a ton of amazing historical artifacts. You have the gi that you fought Lance Bachelor in. And you, I believe you have a gi of, of Elio, of Grandmaster Elio's, made of sailcloth. Is that right? Yeah, well, the gear that I have of his is not the one that I used when I fought Lance Bachelor. Uh, it was the one that I used before the fights for the tournament because the one that I fought Lance Bachelor and fought got washed. <laughs> <laughs> but this other one did not. So that was a different gear. And the other one that I have, it is Elio uh, Grace's gear where uh, the Grace Academy, if you guys go back and, and see the history of the Grace Academy, and, and remember they used to have the Gracie washing machine, so the wash machine was to wash all those geese made by sailboat material. And one of the geese is over here in the academy. And, and the, the wash machine is in my house in Brazil. That's, that's incredible. And we hear all these stories about Grandmaster Elio's attention to detail about how everything had to be a certain way and everything always had to be clean and, and precise. Do you remember, like, what do you remember about the details of learning jiu-jitsu from Elio Gracie? Well, it was basically 15 years of my life. And he got me at such a young age, and he pretty much molded myself from, from a young, wild, crazy kid to a more respectful man. And uh, I gr he watched me growing up. Uh, Ellie was a, he ended up to be a good friend of my mom. And my mom used to be very uh, super nice lady, super gentle, great manners, very rigid. And uh, she does not allow us to do nothing that's not 100% by the book. So one time she talked to Elio. And she told Elio that I was a little bit wild, that I like to fight, that I like I was aggressive. And Elio and, and my mom actually mentioned that I was taking medicine and I was going taking like a ADD. Back in the early days, they didn't have too much uh, knowledge about you were different. They tell you that you're crazy. So I grew up thinking that I was crazy. And Elio Gracie, he's the first guy who actually said, you know what, you're not that crazy. And he asked my mom if I give... Pedro, a $100 bill, you think you eat it or he put it in his pocket? Because if he put it in his pocket, I can still fix him. That was, that's what Elio told my mom. And I was probably 15, 16 years old when that happened. 
So that was a, in my kind of view, was like not just he, he put this kind of trust on me, but at one time when I was training with him, and that's something that's never came out of my mind, is I was being very vivid, is to me be grappling Grandmaster Elio in downtown Rio de Janeiro at the first Grace Academy downtown. And um, Elio got in a mount position, put the hand on my neck, and I was freaking out to try to get out of there. I was trying to escape, tried to escape, I couldn't escape, I tried to escape, couldn't escape. And after that, he brought a phrase, said, so, I heard that you're crazy. You're crazy? You're full of, uh, you know, you're, not, you're full of crap. You're not crazy. You know, you can trick your parents, but you don't trick me. And when that day, when they said that, when that moment happened, I never forgot about that. Because in my first time in my life that I could not trick someone with my pretend craziness. Elio didn't, didn't bought. So at that moment on, I was terrified to walk in people. First of all, I got introduced in Jiu-Jitsu. I got raped, you know, by Hoyler, by young people, by people smaller than me. I got destroyed. And after that, Elio didn't believe in my craziness. So pretty soon, all my fantasy was down the drain. I was not that crazy, and I was getting my butt kicked by little people. And for me to be in Rio de Janeiro, thinking that I was a tough guy, growing up to be all cocky, all tough, you know, around the girls, all kind of long, try to talk. And you know, my whole entire pretend face went out to the drain. And I thought, man, jiu-jitsu is incredible. What do you think the one most important thing you learned from Elio Gracie is? Uh, well, how to be a man, you know, how to, uh, how to really, you know, be a, be a man. And that's what Elio Grace did in my life. He, he showed me not just an incredible amount of jiu-jitsu knowledge, that I got all my belts from white to coral belt, you know, with under Elio. But he, sh he taught me how to be a, a, a man with integrity, with, with discipline, uh, the life health style, uh, to take care of my body, to take care of my mind, to train smart, to use intelligent moves. I always think about the perfect mechanic, never cheat using my muscle. That's the kind of things that Elio brought to me very vivid. So the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu self-defense program is something that you, you came up with, the Elio Gracie self-defense program. And I'm curious, like a lot of times people think that self-defense Jiu-Jitsu is in conflict somehow with sport jujitsu and i'm just like you have some folks that are that want to be pure self-defense some people don't want to be pure sport i'm wondering where what you think like do you think that you have to choose do you think that the two complement each other uh how, where do you come down on that well basically jujitsu developed by the elio gracie uh we have to start to think about the principle elio gracie what he did he learned jujitsu from his brother carlos gracie and he couldn't do it jujitsu very well because he was fragile, he was skinny, he was an, uh, awkward, he couldn't do very well. So he started to put a little leverage, he started thinking more about leverage, how can I make this happen? Instead, try to lift with my arm, let me try to lift with my legs. Instead, try to push the guy with my hands, let me try to push him with my knees. He tried to kind of add in more techniques based on leverage. And after that, he started going for fights, and he, he put the, the jujitsu style to be proof test. Let's test this on the streets. Let's see how it goes. So he started fighting guys bigger than him, heavier than him. Uh, you know, see how his fat matches Elio Gracie did, fought his life. He never fought somebody smaller than him. He always fought people who was kind of fit, you know, bigger and powerful. So that's the strategy. And when you talk about self-defense, self-defense means you are, in, you are under control of your body. 
you protect your body, you protect your joints, you protect the submission before they happen. And uh, when you are a self-defense expert, you understand exactly what to do to protect yourself at, it, at every time, at any time. So you can have a perfect self-defense mechanics and go to compete jiu-jitsu. And I do advise everybody to go to compete jiu-jitsu. I don't think there's no difference at all. The difference that you're going to see is when you practice only sports jiu-jitsu. If you do sports jiu-jitsu only and you never went through the process how to protect your joints, when I talk about protect your joints, I'm not talking about just for you to resist an arm bar. I'm talking about for you before you see an arm bar, you slide yourself out of there before the lock's there. Before somebody put a leg lock, before somebody put a move on you, you are you're already out. You already premeditate the possibility that somebody can own your joints. And you do, you escape. And when you escape, you escape in uh, creating uh, space between you and your opponent. If your opponent tries to be persistent, you can counterattack him. And that's Elio Grace's Jiu-Jitsu. It's because you're giving up size, you're giving up weight. Now you have to use a strategy to beat a bigger guy. So for you to beat a big guy, for you to be able to perform well against a bigger guy, you got to have self-defense first. That's why the Grace of Combatives is important. Because when you learn this on the beginning of your career in Jiu-Jitsu, down the road, when you get your black belt, and even after, every time you go back, you go back for the basics. And the basics are self-defense. Instead, you come to class the first day, and you learn berimbolo. You're a brand new guy, and you're doing berimbolo. The second day of class, you're doing the La Riva guard. The third day of class, you're doing Z guard. You're doing X guard. You're doing S mount. And you don't even know what to do. You don't even know where to put your arms, how to put your hands, how to save your fingers, how to save your elbows. You don't even have no clue. Well, down the road, when you get older, you're going to go back for which basics? You're not going to have nothing to rely on. And that's why people quit so much. That's why people get hurt so badly. Uh, you see how many people who go to compete a lot, and they get very tough, very good, but they pretty soon they have to quit. Because the body cannot take this kind of punishment. But if you do self-defense early, you're going to have tools on your box to protect your joints. When, when you do competition, when you do in a street fight, when you teach a law enforcement, when you teach a little kid, when you teach a little boy, the self-defense will feed and help anybody. The sport is only going to help a small percentage of people. That makes perfect sense to me. And I would love to return to talking about the keys to longevity in jiu-jitsu because most of us listen to the podcast or want to do it for the rest of our lives as well. But I want to ask one more question about Grandmaster Elio, where you have a lot of certificates on the wall, you know, for, for your belts and such. And there's one that's in Portuguese that's signed by Grandmaster Elio. And I, 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 is, is that about the self-defense program or can you tell me the story of that? This is a technical uh, certificate is a uh, technician. You know, that's what it is. It's more like a technician style. And it was a, it was time that I worked at the Corporal Quattro Academy, and I received that from the, the Corporal Quattro kind of branch when it came to me. And that when I moved to America, you know, I, I received the certificate here in America after afterwards. And, um, and I have to put all my papers together for a green card, all my curriculum, and that's how I, the certificate came to my hands. And so when you first moved to America with Hickson, you, you and Luis Heredia Limao were staying in Hickson's garage, is that right? Yep, we lived there. We, Limao was there for a couple of years. I was there for six months until I moved to Utah. Um, yeah, we lived there in the garage, and we sp spent the first beginning training for the Machado brothers, Hanzo, Hoyce, Guhoyler. It was uh, just just us. It was nobody else to, to do jiu-jitsu, no, no students. 
Do you have any fond memories of that time where it's just you and some of the, the real legends of the art training together? Many, many fun times. I basically, I was on the mat all day. You know, Hicks and White, we are cops like 6 30 in the morning, we awake. Uh, me and Elio, we used to go to a school for a couple of hours to learn uh, English and come back and just be on the mat the whole entire time, all day, uh, training and rolling and uh, with everybody. Machado's, the most talented people, John Jack, unbelievable, unbelievable. Carlos Machado, Higan, uh, Johnny. How unbelievable. Hanzo Grace, Hanzo is the best you can f possibly find. What a, what a great dude over there. Say it as it is, right there, the nicest guy, always vivid, tough as can be, unbelievable talent. Um, Hoyler, same thing, very talented. It, it was a great time. Hoyce, Hoyce is the nicest guy you're ever going to find in your life. Super cool, very laid back, easy going. And by the way, we owe so much to Hoyce. You know, he's the one who put the face and the body in the line against so many bigger guys there. And Hoyce was not a guy who fought on the streets that many times. Hoyce was very nice, super laid back. He went to the octagon to fight those matches without too much street uh, preparation. Hoyce has never been in f street fights. He's never been in, in physical confrontation. Hoyce is just nice. So he did pure jiu-jitsu. So one of the things that I'm interested in is people that you just mentioned are some of the best ever to do jiu-jitsu, some of the toughest people from the old school era, and you came up training in this environment and fighting, and, and yet your longevity is incredible, and you're still able to do jiu-jitsu. You've been able to, to you're, it seems like you're going to be doing this forever. And so I'm wondering what your answer to the question is, like what, what is the key to longevity in jiu-jitsu? The key to longevity in jiu-jitsu is, number one, you don't train hard. You cannot train hard if you want to have, have longevity. If you train hard every day, it will catch up. It's going to be a matter of time, and you're going to pop joints here and there. You're going to pop your knee, pop your elbow. You're going to start popping your hips, and eventually the operation starts happening. And that's the beginning of the end. And uh, if you're not passionate, and even if you are passionate, what are you going to do if you cannot move? What do you do? You know, I, when I came to America, I paid the price that nobody has to pay. It is to try to show jiu-jitsu to American guys giving up 100 pounds, 150 pounds, and you give up those, those weights, and guess what? Next day, your body's going to feel it. You're giving up, you let somebody 100 pounds have the new on top of you, grounding you, you're going to feel it next day. Well, I've done that for so many years. Today, I have 12 uh, operations. I have 11 screws on my body, and I'm still sick because I have the great master Elio Grace's strategy and mentality of self-defense. That's the only reason I can come back to the mat and move without, because otherwise I couldn't even move. Imagine if I only thing I knew was sport. It was to grappling sport-wise, to be grabbing geese too much. You can notice that anybody who trained with me in our, in our system, we don't, don't rely on grab geese. We use geese for hygiene, we use geese for strategy, but we don't use geese to stop your opponent. We, we actually want to have people to move. We want to give them freedom because the more they move, the better chance they have to tap you. The less you move, the less chance might, might, might is for tap, for submission. So the key in jiu-jitsu is, yeah, you want to have a gi, you want to train with the gi, but you don't want to burn your hands, you don't want to burn your grip. You want to give some kind of freedom to your opponent to move for you to be able to submit him. And after that, you transfer this for your life, for your normal, normal day training.
most of the people listening to this podcast are passionate about jujitsu and they're at a bunch of different levels. And so I'm wondering what you think the biggest mistake people that are maybe early in their journey, maybe they've been training a year or two, maybe they have a blue belt. What, what, the, what are the biggest training mistakes you see those folks making that they could correct to improve their jujitsu journey? Well, the first thing is for you to not to use too much muscle. So I think, I'm, I think you should get fit. I, shouldn't think it, I believe you should get limber. I think you should try to stretch your body. You should be playful. I like to see guys come to class as a beginner, white belts, blue belts, and be very playful. Because if you can learn jiu-jitsu playful, when you decide to plug the turbo back on, you're going to be a monster. But if you come to class from the first day with the turbo already connected, how much more better are you going to do it? You're already doing 100% every day you come. So I like to see people come trimming down using 20% effort. Just go slow, play, be smooth, be subtle, be tricky. Be like let your hands slide to people's neck. Let it, and eventually start hitchhiking. Jiu-jitsu eventually is everything makes sense. It's not doesn't come that easy on the beginning. That's why I believe that's important for anybody to start with the combatives that Hero and Hannah are doing the, the combatives course the Grace Academy offer, and we do offer here too. It is in many of our schools now is doing that. I see the results here in my school. You know, I have a, a doctor's eyes. I can clean, I can walk on the mat, and I, my eye can go around. At the same time, my ear, my ears, I can see the way how people train. I can see the noise. I can see the feeling. I can see the breathing. All the effort that you put on the mat, I can tell you, you doubt a doubt, how long going to be on the mat. If you are killing yourself every train, I know you're going to quit. It's going to be a matter of time. And, you know, eventually you're going to get married. Eventually you're going to have a wife who's going to tell you, honey, what are you doing? You come here, you're all bruised up. Now you come here, you're all sore. Now you're going to get a shoulder operation. Now you got to get a new operation. Honey, come on, you got to stop that. Now you're working. Now you have kids, you got a family. Come on, Tom, you got to stop. But what happens if you do jiu-jitsu in a smart way with intelligent mechanics? You can be doing this forever. Your wife's going to be glad that you do that, but you come home very safe, ha- happy, calm, with a lot of tolerance behind all the mechanics that you have. Everything has peaceful on you. Why? Because you came to the class and you left all your bad thought. If you had a bad day, the bad day is over here in the academy. When you go home, you go home like a little kid. Your wife going to love it. That's the social part of jiu-jitsu that's, that's going to guarantee a longevity. And I see that social part of jiu-jitsu here in your academy. And you're the head of a thriving association. You have schools all over now. So I want to ask you a few questions about that. And the first question I have to ask, you know, you have numerous black belts. And here at the headquarters, you just you have your 11th black belt training here. So I'm wondering, what does the black belt mean to you? And what is specifically, what does giving a black belt to someone mean to you? Black belt is somebody who went through the whole process, the grinding, the beginning, the... the the, the whole entire process for you to be in a position for you to be an example to others. So a black belt is somebody who can help a lot of the people. Any black belt from this school here, or even blue, purple, brown, anybody who come from this school here, you can move to a different area and you can start your own group of guys as a school and you're going to make a huge difference in the community. What you are going to do with your presence, with your demeanor, with your courtesy, with your respect, integrity, discipline, what you're going to bring with that black belt is going to make a huge difference in any society. So I'm more about the society that see people striving to be a better person, to make a difference than actually the tough guys. Tough guys, I see my whole entire life, and I see them all quit. 
you know, they are eventually all done. So the technical guys, they stay forever. So I think right now, anybody who's thinking about longevity, if you don't think about training or smart moves, you is a matter of time. You're not going to be putting your gear anymore. I noticed that you have several association get-togethers with some of your students from your various academies coming together. Do you feel that's helped in building sort of a community and a connection between the Pedro Sauer Association? And if if you do, what other strategies do you use to kind of build that sort of community? Uh, well, yes. We what we do that we try to get camps and and a conference and we try to put like a training camp together. And the way how we gonna do? I want to see guys, high level guys, come together. And when we get together, it's not me, myself, Pedro Sauer, only one teaching. Anytime I see a black belt, I see, a, doesn't matter, brown belt, I, I can see a blue, well, I see a blue belt doing a move. He did a seminar, went to a different school. Man, I learned this move. You know what? Show me that. Bring that to me. What I want to see, I want to see an open book. And I've done this since my first day. Since my first day of Jiu-Jitsu, I always had an open mind. And I always visit other schools. I always visit other people. I had a friendship with a lot of the people that was against the graces before. And I tried to kind of bring them inside, bring them together. And today I try to do the same thing too. Because I don't think about animosity. If you are put in your gi, if you come to the mat, I don't care who you are. You got my total respect, 100%. I'm not, I'm not, not going to try to prove if I see that you're doing something wrong or doing something forceful, I might be giving you a tip, but I'm not going to be screaming. I'm not going to be telling you. I'm not going to make you feel bad. I prefer to, you know, I think respect is something that's very important, what we do. And when we do those camps, we can explore respect in a very different ways. One is by having everybody else teach in class. You know, I think it would be an awesome uh, example for you to see other people sharing class and myself there learning moves, uh, watching moves like I did with the combatants. You know, I went there to the Grace Academy when uh, when we start talking about merging curriculum, merging ideas, I went to the Grace Academy because I want to see what the combatant was about. And I got together with Hannah. He was very patient and enough to, to spend three days with me. We went through the whole entire course, and I think that the course was wonderful. It was incredible. I came back with a completely different mindset because I noticed that that course would be an incredible introduction for any single individual. And what those guys are doing with their online uh, classes, they allowed people that live in different rural areas, uh, different countries, they have no way to come to the academy, but they start getting a little taste. And guess what? Those people, because they have the taste in the mouth, the first opportunity they got, they're going to look for schools. They're going to look for academies. So what those kids are doing, they are helping the whole entire jiu-jitsu community. Because now they have 150,000 people in this combative course. Guess what? They want to te- try. They have a gi. They have a garage. You know, if they visit other schools, they bring the gi. Now, it's not a matter for you to bring those guys in and try to... F- kill them and see those guys are learning online they don't know nothing it's not the point they learn jiu-jitsu to work against unpredictable opponents not jiu-jitsu against jiu-jitsu jiu-jitsu against a bad guy and when you do this down the road this gonna go back to be your basics and you will be so glad that you've done that so I know you have a very rigorous black belt testing process. And I'm curious if you have favorite memories of David Porter's black belt test. 
No, no, I don't have that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's basically the Dave is a is, is I was a great talent guy. He came here. He's been he's here way more than me. He's here every day. Uh, devote to the academy. Devote to the showness. Everybody here loves Dave. He's very proper by the book. Has a commitment with the technical aspect that is unbelievable, unheard. He's always about the technique. In and even you could say, Dave, go ahead and try to freak out, fight. Uh-uh. He's just a layback, easy going, take your time. And you can see right now he can go to tournaments and he will fight tough guys, very good guys. And, and he, you don't see him being aggressive. You don't see him screaming, going after each other. But he's actually, you actually see him even be a little bit passive in tournaments. But it's just one blank of eyes, the submission happened. And that's what Jiu-Jitsu is about. Jiu-Jitsu is about strategy. It's not about to go there and try to maul to each other and try to run over to each other. Jiu-Jitsu is about how to play poker and make your opponent flip the card to you. That's the strategy of Jiu-Jitsu. It's not how to play poker and just put your cards on the table and ignore your opponent's card. It's the same thing about chess, chess game. So we need to learn all those strategies if you want to be longer on the mat. One thing I notice about all of your high-level guys, they always seem to be smiling and having fun, even when they're in, as you mentioned, intense competitive situations against very tough guys. They always seem to be enjoying the process of jiu-jitsu. Well, I, we, we over here believe that if you can train smiling, it's because you're having fun, you're not trying to kill each other, and it has some kind of respect. It's not a smile in a bad way. It's in a smile in a very respectful way. We are there. I have to smile uh, to my opponent and be kind with him because he actually lent him his body for me to practice jiu-jitsu. And if you think about a huge academy, a, a big uh, academy, if you have one, one guy that's very serious and is always hurting people, he's always putting a lot of pressure on people and hurting people, that guy is actually using his physical ability, not his mental ability. The mental ability is to cope in a hard pressure in a very smart way, how can I take one more breath here? How can I turn my body this way? How can I create one more inch for me? How can I get my elbow back to me? How can I use my knee? How can I be peaceful over here? How can I wait for the opportunity? Now, this is jiu-jitsu. Now, to fight against each other, turn the outer palate and go on full blast every day, you can do this once in a while too. There's nothing wrong with that. But all the time, it smells like injuries. I have one other question about uh, someone you mentioned earlier, Bao Ru, who is someone that I don't think a lot of people know about, but I've heard stories about legendary skill and toughness. And I'm wondering if you have any Bao Ru stories you might be able to share with us. Well, I have many Bao Ru stories, not so many that I can, I can share. <laughs> um, I can tell one story. Bao Ru he used to work in a junkyard. And uh, for every single car, every single time he has to take a car apart, he looked at the boat. And the first thing he do, he put his hands and he tried to undo the boat with his own hands before he get the tool. He just go get the tool if he cannot twist the boat with his hands. Bauru was a, a super talent, tough guy, strong like you won't believe it, gifted, athletic guy. In 1970s, Bauru, uh, when skateboard came, it was nobody knew skateboarding in the seventies. It was very it was new stuff. It was a board piece of wood with wheels. Bauru used to grab the skateboard and run, put the skateboard on the ground, and do like a with the legs up in the air, handstand in a skateboard. 
in the 70s. And Bauru was already doing that. Who do you think some of the most underrated figures in jiu-jitsu are, or people that, for whatever reason, people don't hear about, don't know about, that um, do you feel like people ought to know more about? Yes, I do have one guy that's completely underrated, and I got to bring this name. His name is James Gardner, and he's from uh, Utah. He works at Unified. That uh, was my, my first school in Utah, Unified, that was run by Johnny Calquist. That's another super talent. And by the way, Utah has an incredible talent, guys, there. You can find uh, Matt, uh, Mike Diaz. You can find so much Ray Griffin, Eddie Edmonds. Uh, you have, uh, you know, but James Gardner, it is someone that's, when you ask about underrated, you look at James. James is probably 140, 145 pounds, very light, very quiet. He doesn't say a word. He's got a completely easy personality, super nice guy. And on the mat, he is the most talented guy that I've ever seen in my life. He's a talent. He's nice. He's the whole package. James Gardner. If you're ever in Salt Lake, go visit Unified, and you tell me later what you think about <laughs> Is there anything that I haven't asked about that you really wish I would have asked about, or just anything you think that the listeners ought to know? Well, no, I think you asked a very good question. I think as I, um, right now, I would like to spend more time maybe talk about longevity, you know, because I, I believe that jiu is such an incredible art. We can build such incredible people by doing jiu by keeping those people in class. And I think with longevity, if anybody want to train jiu longer, remember, we are learning how to break each other's joint, how to stretch each other's bones and, and, and muscles to the limit. If you don't have control, if you don't have discipline, if you don't have good integrity, character, we're not going to be able to really explore jiu-jitsu. You're going to explore jiu-jitsu when you put respect on the mat. The more respect you put on the mat, the more you're going to explore. Because if I trust you with my joints, when my hand goes up for me to say, uncle, and you let me go, I'm going to start exploring jiu-jitsu. If I have to tap because I'm fearful for you to break my joints, I'm never going to explore jiu-jitsu. I'm going to tap right away. I'm not going to be funny. I'm, going to, I'm not going to be slippery. I'm going to be very resistant, very resilient. So jiu-jitsu got to be with respect. And, of course, you can bring all this that we talked today and take this to social life. And that's when you're really going to smell the benefit is in social life. Because of here in America, people don't fight every day. We don't see that. So jiu-jitsu, we learn how to fight, but we don't do it. We don't need it. But social life, you always got to fight. Not physically, but with words, with positions, with body, you know, body kind of mechanics, how, how you position your body, how, what's, your, what's your message body-wise. Jiu-Jitsu gives you a very comfortable situation for you, to, for you to be comfortable on your own skin. I think that's the number one benefit to get from Jiu-Jitsu. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. My pleasure, Amigo. I appreciate everybody, all the listeners there. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Stay safe on the mat. When you get a chance, go visit any Pedro Sauer school, and you tell me if you see any difference. U.S. Grappling is our favorite tournament organization for a lot of reasons. Run by grapplers for grapplers, U.S. Grappling consistently provides the best tournament experience for competitors. Whether it's a points tournament or submission only, and U.S. Grappling runs true no-time-limit submission-only events, it's the best place to compete and to watch your friends compete. Check out upcoming events and register online at usgrappling.com.
Pedro Sauer is a legend of the art for very good reason. And I think you just heard many of those reasons in that interview. He's one of the few people that is able to rise above the politics of the art, the politics of the sport, and just have universal respect from everyone that you talk to. Part of that is his credibility as an old school person who trained with Elio Gracie for 15 years. And you just heard the story of him coming up in jiu-jitsu. But a lot of it also has to do simply with his attitude. And I want to elevate in the few minutes we have left a couple of things about that interview that maybe uh, either you missed or that I just think are worth highlighting. I was so impressed by his open-minded attitude and perspective and the fact that whenever there is something that he thinks is worth learning, he learns it. Master Sauer is willing to learn from anybody, and I just think that's such an incredible thing for someone who has achieved what he has. I also think that the connection to something larger that you hear uh, throughout the interview is something that is worth noting. Obviously, Pedro Sauer is connected to Elio Gracie, the founder of the art. And one of the, the, the coolest things about it is when he talks about what the black belt means to him, it doesn't just mean somebody that knows all the techniques, that is somebody that is a monster on the mat or an excellent fighter. It means someone that can make a positive difference in the community. And I think that's something that is a perspective worth validating and a perspective worth elevating. We, you hear him talk about the choking log that Bauru gave to Grandmaster Elio Gracie and that now resides in the Pedro Sauer headquarters in Herndon, Virginia. Uh, I want to thank David Porter both for helping to arrange that interview and also showing me this log because I got the chance to practice some collar chokes on it. And it was extremely cool. It was one of the coolest things I've done in jiu-jitsu because, A, you see how somebody doing this might have developed a pretty deadly collar choke. But also it sort of provides a connection with where this art came from, uh, with something that transcends time that's not just the present day and given the fact that the mundial de jiu-jitsu the jiu-jitsu world championship is this week and it's something that i am super excited about and i'm always excited about and have so much fun during this time of the year it's a, an important reminder that although sport jiu-jitsu is incredible it's certainly the tip of the iceberg as regards the art of jiu-jitsu and so this month is an incredible month for a lot of different reasons and the mundials is one reason why but getting to interview pedro sauer and uh to play the interview with marilla bustamante on the show is certainly something that's pretty special for me and i hope you enjoyed those interviews as much as i enjoyed uh, conducting and listening to them so that's our show for the week. Next week, we are going to bring you a Mundial review for most of the days of the Mundials. We are also going to preview Toro Cup, Toro Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu's signature event, which is June 10th. And that is going to be the best Toro Cup yet. The card is insane with tons black belts, brown belts, purple belts that compete regularly, including a bunch of folks that haven't been on the card before, several that are from out of state, and it's going to be an outstanding event to benefit charity, and I hope that I see you all there. We'll have more to say about that next week during our uh, during our Toro Cup preview show. We're going to get matchmaker John Bagels Telford on the show to break down the card with us, and we're also going to review how the local folks do at the Mundials. To throw once again a plug out there for our Mundials contest, you can go to our Facebook page, which is Cageside Radio or DirtyWhiteBelt.com slash blog, and you can enter your picks for who wins every division at the Mundials. If you do that, not only is it going to enable you to have a little more fun watching the worlds as there's something at stake, but you can also win a lot of Dirty White Belt gear from shirts to hats to gi patches and uh, just participate in the community and sort of watch along with your friends. We will keep track of how all of the local folks are doing in jiu-jitsu at the Worlds, and we will uh, post updated open threads every day, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So please uh, check out our Facebook page and participate in those. Uh, my thanks 
to my guests, Pedro Sauer and Marilla Bustamante. It was a real honor to have you folks on the show. And I would like to also thank uh, Hoist Gracie Black Belt Seth Champ for conducting the interview with Marilla Bustamante, to David Porter for setting up the Pedro Sauer interview. And I want to also thank everyone who showed up to support that seminar. Uh, we've put on two seminars so far at Dirty White Belt. We want to keep doing more. So thank you to everyone who shows up to learn amazing jiu-jitsu from some of the legends of the art because that enables us to continue to do this and enables us to continue to put on seminars like that. So let us know who you want us to bring in next. This has been Dirty White Belt Radio. My name is Jeff Shaw, and we will see you all next Sunday.